All right, uh, welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, welcome to uh, the next session in Trisha's day of Tishaba of programming. Uh, we are about to begin our session, The Impossibility of Mourning, Zoharic Thoughts on the Interminability of Tishaba Av, which will be led by Dr. Nathaniel Berman, who is the Rail Varney and Professor in Brown University's Religious Studies Department. Uh, he's the author of Divine and Demonic in the po Poetic Mythology of the Zohar, The Other Side of Kabbalah, as well as Passion and Ambivalence, Colonialism, Nationalism, and International Law. Uh, we are thrilled to have this class, uh, which will focus on the questions of if we are commemorating Tisha B'Av with many of the customs of mourning in our personal lives, why can we not ever complete the mourning? And do we ever complete mourning in our personal lives? To look at this, we will study some texts from Kabbalistic masterpiece, the Zohar, on what Tisha B'Av can teach us about mourning and vice versa. Uh, without further ado, Dr. Berman, uh, whenever you're ready. So the custom on Tisha B'Av is not to greet each other um, but since it's past the, past the half-day mark, um, it is uh, perhaps a leniency to be able to say uh, that I'm uh, eager to share with you the thoughts that I've been mulling over about Tisha B'Av um, and about mourning during this time. Uh, certainly, we know that we are living at a time in which there is uh, much to mourn about. We live at a time of great distress. Uh, we live at a time of plague. We know that we have about 670,000 people who have died from the plague um, and countless others have been ill. Countless others have suffered in many, many different ways um, during this period of time, um, as well as all of the other ills of society that we know about. Um, oppression, violence, um, subordination of all kinds. Um, so one way to approach Tisha B'Av is to look at its relevance for today. Um, and I think that many people who are giving classes um, uh, today will be drawing parallels between the events that uh, we are commemorating today and the kind of things that are going on in the world. Um, I'm not gonna do that although I think that is an incredibly important thing uh, to do. Instead, I'm going to reflect on the problem of mourning itself and the kinds of reflections that are in our tradition about mourning that have come up in relationship to Tisha B'Av. And these thoughts and these reflections go back very, very deep, uh, probably a couple of millennia. Um, Tisha B'Av, or some fast, uh, on of, it's unclear what day it originally was on, started a very long time ago, probably not long after the destruction of the first temple in the sixth century BC. Um, so people have been commemorating the fast of Av on and off for a, a two millennia and a half. Um, and the question I pose in the description of this class is, will it ever end? the interminability of Tisha B'Av. 
well, how is it possible that it's been going on this long? Um, and what does that say about mourning? What does that say about the mourning process itself? Okay, and I'm going to take you through some key texts on this, and it's going to be uh, a very textual class. I will teach for a while, and then I will open up to questions um, after a certain amount of time, keep teaching, ask more questions, uh, and so forth and so on. So I'm going to now show you my screen. It turns out that the, the, the beginning of reflection about the interminability of Tisha B'Av is very, very old. We're still fasting? Well, it turns out that question was asked long, long ago. Um, and let us look at when that question was first asked. It turns out the question was first asked in the book of Zechariah, in the Tanakh itself, in the Bible itself. The question was already being asked then. And the, the, the question was transmitted um, in the form of, of, a, of, a, of a letter or of a messenger. Right? Um, and we'll see how important that is going to be as we go along. Okay, so this is from the book of Zechariah in chapter 7. Um, and I've just quoted you one verse here. This is a, a message is sent from Babylon, the place of exile, to the land of Israel. Right? And it says, to ask of the priests in the house of Yudhei Vavek and of the prophets, should I weep in the fifth month, the month of Av? Should I fast as I have done these many years? So this question was asked, this is question is being asked in the sixth century BC, already being asked. Should we keep going? And the reason they're asking part is because there's already been a kind of return to the land. And they say, should we keep going? Should we keep fasting? This is 2,500 years ago that they're asking this question. We're still asking this question today although we've been fasting now for an additional 2,500 years. Now, the answer that the prophet gives is very complicated, and I'm not going to go through that right now. But I just wanted to put that, put that in your mind, this, a reflection on the interminability of Tisha B'Av is something that has been going on in the Jewish tradition for a very, very long time. The, the question of, fa of mourning and fasting in the tradition recurs again and again in the form of letters, in the form of letters. And so uh, I, I'm going to kick this off with let the, um, a passage from the Zohar, the great anthology of, of texts on, on Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism from the late 13th century in Spain. Um, and the Zohar and Echa, the Book of Lamentations, is framed by an exchange of letters between people in Babylon and people in Jerusalem. Um, and it starts off like this, and I want to use this as a frame for everything that follows. Today. Those children of Babylon sent to the children of the Holy Land. In other words, basically the Jews in exile sent to the Jews in Jerusalem, although it's it just says the children of Babylon to the children of the Holy Land. And they say, it is for us to cry. It's for us to cry. It is for us to make the eulogy. 
for the destruction of the house of our Elohim, the temple, and for our dispersion among the nations. That's what they say. They begin to say, and one can say perhaps is a very Jewish thing, who has it worse? Who has more of a right to mourn? Well, it turns out that the Jews in Jerusalem said, no, no, the children of the Holy Land sent back to them in this exchange of letters or messages. We have far more cause to cry and make the eulogy, for we are the children of the queen and we are members of her household. Okay. So there's a competition. Is it those who are in exile in Babylon who have or more, more to mourn about, or is it the Jews in Jerusalem? They say, we are the children of the queen, okay? And the queen in, in the Zohar, in Kabbalah, is the Shekhinah. It's this female divine persona. You can call her a goddess if that, if that language appeals to you. We are the children of the queen. We are members of her household. And we are orphans without father and mother. And we look at the walls of our mother's house. We look at the walls of our mother's house. They're referring to the temple, but that's not what they say. They say, we look at the walls of our mother's house and behold, it is destroyed and we cannot find her. And in a way I could stop here. The, the, the debate is already engaged. First, the, the Jews of Babylon sending to Zechariah the prophet uh, or sending to the, the prophets in, in Jerusalem and saying, should we keep fasting? The Zohar picks this up, written many, many, many centuries later, right? And picks up this idea, obviously inspired by Zechariah, and says, Let's, let me think of it as a debate. What is mourning about? Is exile worse or is it being in Jerusalem? And something you'll notice about the text that I showed is that the Jews in Babylon Right? They talk about collective, a collective tragedy. We have been dispersed among the nations, and we should mourn that. The Jews in Jerusalem, when they respond, they personalize it. They draw some kind of relationship between the collective tragedy, the collective mourning. In fact, they don't even mention it. They say, we are mourning our mother. We are mourning the loss of our mother. We are orphans and we are in the, we look at her house and she is not there. And therefore it is more, we have more to mourn about. So the debate is engaged. Personal mourning, collective mourning, mourning for something that happened a long time ago, mourning for something that's happening um, in the present. And that's the frame of what I want to share with you today in a way that it's already engaged. There'll be a lot of texts that follow, but the main issues I want to raise with you are already there. Let me go back to my text. That's not how I got out of order here. Okay. Um, this issue of the relationship between collective mourning and personal mourning is something that many of us are familiar with. Certainly um, in the Ashkenazi tradition, there's a formulation that we are all too familiar with, which is that when you go to visit someone in a Shiva house, and you go to comfort a mourner, you sit there, maybe you talk to them, maybe you don't, depending on what happens. 
Um, but the custom is that whatever happens when you go there, as you leave, your final thing that you say to them is this formula, may God comfort you among all the other mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. And somehow the, there's this idea of drawing a connection between personal mourning and collective mourning. Now this phrase has, has somewhat mysterious origins. It's not a very ancient phrase. Um, we don't really know who first coined it, certainly not before the late Middle Ages. The phrase though, Zion, the mourners of Zion, is a phrase that is extremely ancient. It actually occurs um, in the Tanakh, and it actually refers to people mourning about the loss of the temple, the loss of Zion, the loss of Jerusalem. It's actually a phrase referring to the destruction of the temple. That's where it comes from. And somehow when you leave a mourner's house, the final thing you say, whether or not you said anything until then, is this drawing a connection between collective and uh, personal uh, mourning. And it's a very mysterious process that goes very, very deep in the Jewish tradition, even though that phrase is not, is not that ancient. And where do we first see it? Among other places, we see it in the Talmud. Um, in, the, in the Talmud Babli, the Babylonian Talmud, in the tractate Ta'anit, the, the, the volume of the Talmud that's specifically de de dedicated to fast days, it says, the rabbis taught, all rules that apply to a mourner apply on Tisha B'Av. So this is now from the different direction. When you leave a Shiva house, you say to the mourner, I hope you're comforted, like we hope that the mourners for Jerusalem are being comforted. In the Talmud, it goes in the, in the other direction. It also draws this parallel, that somehow what we are doing in Tisha B'Av is a mourning process, and in all the rules that apply to a mourner apply on Tisha B'Av, and actually, Many more rules obviously apply in Tisha B'Av, but rules about greeting people, rules about not sitting on a chair, rules about not sleeping on a bed, all sorts of rules that apply to mourners apply in Tisha B'Av. And again, this direct correlation being drawn here between uh, uh, collective and, and personal mourning. Um, and this is something that, again, is far from obvious, far from obvious that that is how you would understand this process of collective mourning, right? So again, they're personalizing. Now, let's come back to the question, let's come back to the question of, let's come back to the question of the interminability of Tisha Abba'av, right? And now that we've talked about the parallels between collective and personal mourning, right? What is it about this Tisha B'Av that we can't get over? We can't get over it, right? When personal mourning, we have this idea that there's, there's, there's the phase before the burial called Aninut. That's the worst phase. You, you, you're not allowed to comfort somebody during that period. Then there's the Shiva, the seven days where you comfort them. Then there's the 30 days, the Shloshim. Then there's the 11 months of St. Kaddish. And then there is the end of the 12 months that draws a close to that mourning period. And yet Tisha B'Av, we're never finished with. Why is it that we're never finished with it if we see in the tradition all these parallels between personal and collective mourning? And so I want to share with you some texts 
about the trauma of Tishabaz and how it was understood. And I put this in the, in the description of this lecture today. The rabbis of the Talmud have this idea that the destruction of the temple changed the world, changed the cosmos, changed God. Um, and this phrase, Miyom Shechara Beit HaMikdash, from the day the temple was destroyed, recurs in the Talmud. I counted 15 times, but I'm not sure if I counted all of them. And I'm going to give you a sample of them, of what happened. Why is it that this is a wound that will not heal? And this is just a sampler from Brachot 49a. From the day the temple was destroyed, the heavens have not been seen in their purity. Uh, I guess I didn't write down the track tape, but this is from another place. From the day the temple was destroyed, the rains have withered. And the Hebrew is very, um, very, very, very vivid. Vishamim simukim. Simukim is kind of what happens to grapes in the sun. They wither and become raisins. Sota 48a. From the day the temple was destroyed, there is no day that is not cursed. And the dew does not descend in blessing. And the flavor of fruits has been taken away. More cursing of nature, the change of nature, does something happen in the cosmos which is radically altered. Sanhedrin 72b. From the day the temple was destroyed, the pleasure of sex was taken away and given to sinners. So that before the temple was destroyed, Sex was a whole other thing. And now the only people who really enjoy it at that high level are sinners. I'm now going to give you, a, on the screen now, you can see a passage from a Midrash, not from the Talmud, but from a Midrash, Midrash Shankuma, a very old Midrash, but which is, was very influential on uh, the Kabbalists of the medieval Kabbalists. And it goes like this. From the greatness of God's love for the earthly Jerusalem, he made another one above in heaven, another a, a heavenly Jerusalem. And after the destruction, he swore that his presence would not enter the one above until the one below is rebuilt. So even the, the destruction of the temple, not only does it damage nature and human experience, but it damages divine experience itself. Now this Midrash becomes very, very important for the Kabbalists because for the Kabbalists, the heavenly Jerusalem is an image of the Shekhinah, this female uh, divine figure, um, and the entering of the heavenly Jerusalem by the Blessed Holy One, by the male figure, is an image of divine copulation of divine union, divine uh, nuptials, um, and that the, the divine itself is ruptured. And again, the Kabbalists draw very much on this kind of uh, Midrashic teaching. So that gives you some sense of why is it that Tisha B'Av can go on forever? It is some, somehow a, a traumatic wound 
in nature, in the divine, in human beings that does not heal. Okay. Now, before I go on, I want to say this. I've been uh, teaching and writing and discussing about mourning and death for uh, a while now. It's a relatively new thing for me. I've only really been doing it for about a year. And something that I've discovered is that mourning is different for every person. Of course, I knew that before. People go through mourning processes differently. Probably every single person goes through mourning processes in a different way. And what I found is that it is a very sensitive subject. Um, it's a subject that I found that people have very strong normative ideas about what mourning should be what it should be and what it shouldn't be. For some, mourning has, is supposed to be measured and should not be excessive. For others, it should be excessive. And if it's measured, that's not authentic. Um, for some, it should follow the, the, the cycle of something laid down for, for many Jews well, by halakha, by Jewish law. For others, they reject that. They think everybody has their own rhythms and cycles. Um, in pop psychology, we know we're, we're familiar with the 12 stages of grief and, and other people have different numbers of stages. Right? And people have very, very strong views about it. And I think that probably many of you listening have their very strong views about it. Um, and I think that's partly why I've begun this whole class and really the whole class is really about different ideas about it, debates about it, right? Um, very, very fierce debates about it. I almost feel I've been teaching for many, many years, for three decades or more, I almost feel like I've had more controversy in teaching about death and mourning than when I taught about uh, colonialism or uh, uh, Israel and Palestine or about sex or about God or about any of the things I've taught about. I feel like in a way there's been more controversy and more heat because it's so personal, so, so personal. Um, and I want to acknowledge that as I go on, um, that that is what it's about. And that's partly why I've set it up this way. It's about a series of debates. I'm going to just give you one more quote and then I'm actually going to pause for questions before I go on. But I'm going to give you just one more quote here. And this is by a well-known French a uh, uh, literary theorist named, uh, let's see, wait, where am I? Yeah, named Roland Barthes, um, who wrote a book um, about, ostensibly about photography, but it was really about, it was really his confrontation with the death of his mother. He was incredibly close with his mother, and he, in fact, um, died possibly in a suicide or possibly in a, an unconscious suicide, um, not that long after his mother died, but he did leave this incredible book called Camera Lucida um, about photography and about the deaths of mothers. And this is what he says. Here is the photograph. A lot of the, a lot of the book centers on this photograph that he found um, of his mother, and I won't go through the details. He says, here is the photograph of my dead mother. 
I am alone with it, in front of it. The circle is closed. There is no escape. I suffer motionless. So just imagine there's somebody standing there with the photograph, paralyzed by it. And then he says this, I cannot transform my grief. I cannot let my gaze drift. No culture will help me utter this suffering. He's refusing contextualization of his grief. He, he's, he's in front of this image. He says, I cannot transform my grief, right? And I refuse all help of culture, all the words, all the rituals, I refuse it. And then he says this, when a photograph is painful, nothing in it can transform grief into mourning nor convert the negation of death into the power to work. And so he sets up a dichotomy here between grief and mourning. Grief as being this cultureless, contextless, um, paralyzing, no escape experience, um, and mourning as being a return in some way of converting a terrible experience into something productive, which of course he did in this book, right? So the book itself in a way is, is, is going beyond that stage of grief. But he's describing, setting up this relationship between grief and mourning in relationship to this image of, of his dead mother. And, I, and I, I just wanted to put that out there because we're gonna come up against that again. And in particular, if you think back to it, in the exchange between the Jews of Babylon and the Jews of Jerusalem, who is present in relationship to the, to the dead mother and who is not present? And how does that affect um, their mourning process? But I know I've put a lot out there already. So I wanna see if, um, I wanna maybe take a, just a couple of questions. And let's see if I know how to do this. I don't, uh, I, I, let's see. Um, I don't seem to be able to see if people are raising their hand. Um, Michael, maybe you could, if you're still around, maybe you could um, turn on somebody who wants to speak. Is Danny uh, Yes, if anyone has a question and they use the raise hand function at the bottom of their screen, uh, I will make it such that uh, talking is permitted. So um, we have one right now, Tony uh, Satlow, who should be able to jump in now. Hi, right. hello, Professor Berman, do you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, it's so great to learn from you. Um, and the question that I have at the moment is um, whether it is possible to distinguish from between individual and collective mourning um, and how that plays out in, in you know, the Zohar um, and kind of the text that you are bringing to us today. Um, that is, th th those are the questions, I mean, that, that's exactly the, cent the central thing I'm putting before you, right? And the, it's really the central thing. It's the thing that this confrontation between the personal and the collective is the issue that is raised when you say hamakom yinachem etzem to somebody in a shiva house, right? It's the question that is in a way debated between the Jews of Babylon and the Jews of Jerusalem in this 
in this exchange of letters in which the Jews of Babylon are talking about the destruction of the temple and exile, and the Jews of Jerusalem are talking about their relationship to their dead mother. Now, of course, their dead mother in question is the Shekhinah, this divine mother, right? And her house, of course, is the temple. But in describing why their trauma is worse, why their trauma is deeper, why their trauma is entitled them to leave the morning, they shifted into the personal register. Um, and, and in a way, the mo some of the most profound Jewish thinking about Tisha B'Av and about mourning is about this confrontation between these two different experiences. And we'll see more of it um, as we go along. So thank you, Danny. Um, do we have anyone else who wants to ask questions at this point? If anyone else wants to jump in, use the uh, use the raise hand feature and uh, we'll call on you. Okay, yes, so we've got one from Beth Brown. Go ahead. Yes, um, looking at... Uh... Wait, she disappeared. Oh, mm -hmm. let's see. Sorry about that, Beth. Looking at the text in Zechariah after 7.3, um, it goes on to talk about the word of Hashem coming to Zechariah and talking about the lack of justice and the lack of loyalty and compassion in the treatment of the widow, the orphan, the stranger. And if we think about where society is in terms of um, complying with God's instruction to attend to those things. And here we are two and a half millennia later and we're still not doing it. It isn't any wonder that our mourning can't end. And it isn't any wonder that we still have Tisha B'Av and will continue having Tisha B'Av. And with regard to the mothers, um, I, I'm sorry I can't recall where in Tanakh it says this, but Torah de Mecha, um, we're somehow not sticking with what our mothers taught us. Great, thank you, Beth. That, those are both great, great, great comments. Um, the, 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 the chapter in Zechariah is incredibly complex. It's, I'm not going to be focusing on it, but it's incredibly complex. The, 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 um, that could, itself could be the subject for you know, a whole day of learning that, that chapter. And, and Zachary is one of my favorite, favorite prophets. Um, and what you said, it was so eloquent. And I think that uh, uh, certainly from a, you know, a, even from like a, a secular social justice perspective or secular morality perspective, um, what you said is, is completely uh, uh, right. Um, and I would say from a Kabbalistic perspective as well, so from a Kabbalistic perspective, uh, uh, the, the, the broken world that we all know we live in, and all we have to do is uh, read the newspaper or look outside our windows, um, is a reflection and a cause and a symptom of a breakage in the divine um, and in our relationship to the divine. And as long as the world is broken, that means that our relationship to the divine is broken, our relationship to ourselves is broken, the divine's relationship to itself is broken, um, and uh, Tisha B'Av 
uh, will go on. And one thing, I, I, just a footnote here is I would say that um, at, at various times in Jewish history, including that that letter sent from Babylon to Zechariah in the in the ch in the chapter from the Bible, at various times in Jewish history, Jews have said, you know, well maybe this is the time to stop fasting on Tisha B'Av. Maybe now we're entering the period of redemption, um, and uh, uh, and we should turn Tisha B'Av into a feast, which is what which is what is broached actually in that chapter in Zechariah. Um, one such time was when the the uh, uh, Shabbat Tzvi, who presented himself as the Messiah in the 17th century, when he came on the scene, he said, we're living in the Messianic time. We should eat on Tisha B'Av. We should celebrate on Tisha B'Av. And of course, the redemption didn't happen in his time. Another time that happened is in, during the Zionist, uh, the, the Zionist uh, early Zionist period. There were proposals to stop fasting on Tisha B'Av and turn it into a day of feast, sometimes invoking Shabbat Tzvi himself. Um, uh, as to whether this is the time that we can stop fast and we can stop rupturing because the world is being redeemed. And uh, 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 obviously that that final redemption has also not, not yet arrived. Um, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on now. And I want to uh, look at some uh, more explicit reflections on this relationship between, um, between collective and personal mourning um, in a very famous talk given by Rabbi Soloveitchik, uh, Rabbi Joseph Dov Soloveitchik, who, as many of you know, uh, was probably the most important uh, thinker of modern Orthodox Judaism um, in, certainly in the United States, uh, and and uh, uh, you know around the world, um, when I was a child, he was referred to simply as the Rav, the Rabbi. Um, although then when I went to Israel and I realized uh, that people when people said the Rav, the Rabbi in Israel, they didn't mean Salvation, they meant Rav Cook, which was kind of a an eye opener for me. But anyway, he wrote this very famous talk um, about Tisha B'Av. And he compares two different kinds of mourning. One he calls new mourning and one he calls old mourning. Um, and new mourning is meaning mourning that has just happened, an event that has just happened. Old mourning is mourning an event that happened a long time ago. And specifically that phrase, which comes from the Talmud, is used to refer to collective mourning. Although sometimes in some in some uh, halakhic discussions, it also refers to the kind of mourning that you have, again, not referring to today when we have uh, all kinds of communication, but when you hear about the death of a, of a, of a family member, when you only hear about it a month or two later in, a, in an era when there wasn't the kind of communication systems we have today. Um, but primarily in the Talmud refers to collective mourning, mourning something that, that specifically mourning something that happened a long time ago. And specifically talking about Tisha B'Av and other, other collective fast days that commemorate historical events. And Soloveitchik in, his, in this essay, he says something really interesting. And first of all, he does this comparison. He says, Avelut Chadasha, new mourning, is a spontaneous response, neither premeditated nor planned, to the sudden attack or onslaught of evil, catastrophe, disaster, or death. And anyone who has had the misfortune of experiencing the death of a loved one knows, knows what, what that's about. You know what that's about. Um, what, what kind of shock when you hear or see the death of a loved one 
what, what, how, what kind of effect that has and your spontaneous reactions to it. And then he says, Abeluki Shana, old morning. In other words, morning something that happened a long time ago. Say, morning Tishaba, the destruction of the temple from two and a half millennia ago. He says it has to be cultivated, gradually evolving through recollection and through unitive time awareness. Unitive time awareness, he means basically our, the, the notion in Jewish tradition that we are united with Jewish history in all of its phases. And then he says the main distinction between these two types of mourning expresses itself in the reversal of the order of the stages. And here he has a complicated teaching that maybe I'll sort of summarize is when you when you have uh, uh, normally in, in with with the morning process, right? You start off with this most intense phase, the aninut, before the burial, right? You proceed to shiva, which itself is divided into two. Then the shloshim, the first thirty days after the death, and then the twelve months, um, the first eleven months are, are are kaddish, and then the twelve months of of of, of mourning until it fades, as he says, into a lingering melancholy. Right? So the intense grief of hearing about the death or seeing a death then gradually fades into a lingering melancholy. And then he says, Abelut Yishana, the old mourning, mourning a historical event, follows a reverse course. And this is what he says. And he, what he's comparing is specifically the period between uh, the three weeks before Tisha B'Av, then the nine days before Tisha B'Av, then Tisha B'Av itself. And he, and he draws an analogy with the phases of personal mourning. He says it starts out with the Abelut, the mourning of the three weeks, which are akin to the 12 months after a personal death, the mildest form of mourning, which represents a sadness. It gradually turns into Abelut Shoshim during the nine days, which he analogizes to the 30 days um, after a death, the first month after a death, right? And then grows in intensity until it reaches the pitch of Shiva. And Tisha B'Av is like Shiva. So we do it in reverse order of what we do in personal mourning. And he says that the reason is, the reason is because it has to be cultivated, right? So even though the rabbis of the Talmud are telling us how all of nature changed and sex changed and fruits changed and the heavens changed and everything changed, nonetheless, he says, to, in order to really experience Tisha B'Av, it's something we have to nurture within ourselves. It's not like when you see the, a beloved person die. It's something you actually have to make happen. It's like you are creating, recreating the trauma within yourself through this three-week process that gradually reaches this fever pitch of trauma and tishavav, where you're like somebody sitting shiva. It's a really interesting thing that he says here. Right? Um, and this is this moment, you know, again, it's, it's sort of the opposite direction. Think about that, um, think about that uh, 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 quote from Roland Barthes that I put on the screen a little while ago, right? Roland Barthes says, what does he say? He says, I cannot transform my grief into mourning, right? And one of the commentators on Roland Barthes, Roland Barthes is Rashi on Roland Barthes. One of the, co one of the commentators, Roland Barthes says, um, it's not that he can't, it's that he doesn't want to. It's that he wants to look at the photograph 
because he's tending the trauma. He doesn't want to go on from grief to mourning. He's tending it. Okay. Um, and again, this has a lot to do with normative ideas about mourning. What should you be doing? What shouldn't you be doing? Um, this idea of Soloveitchik says Tisha B'Av is something that we have to actually bring ourselves into this fever pitch, this, this, this hysteria of mourning on Tisha B'Av, right? this incredibly profound, profound idea um, of what historical memory of what historical memory is. Um, and before I go back to the Zohar, I want to show you this. Really a, a passage from the Talmud, which is really kind of a horrifying passage with all due respect to the rabbis of the Talmud. <clears throat> Rabbi Yehuda said in the name of Rav, this is from the tractate Moed Katan, which has a long, uh, long section on mourning towards the end. Rabbi Yehuda said in the name of Rav, anyone who grieves excessively over his dead will weep for another death. If you mourn too much, you're going to end up suffering another loss. It's really, a, really a, a, an intense in terms of the normativity of mourning. And there are a number of things like this in the Talmud, although there are also things in the other direction about shouldn't mourn too much. Um, uh, it, uh, it, it, it's, it's not respectful in some way, right? Rabbi just says, if you mourn too much, somebody else is going to die. You'll have more to mourn about. Right? And then this terrible story follows. And I'm not going to go in too much to the gender dimension of it, but the gender here is clearly very, very um, important. Um, a certain woman, and, and, and although there are many named women in the Talmud, there are far more anonymous women in the Talmud who appear um, uh, sometimes to be reproached by the male rabbis. In this case, that, that, is, that is so. A certain woman in the neighborhood of Rav Huna had seven sons. One of them died, and she wept for him excessively. Rav Huna sent her, again, this exchange of letters, this, this theme of letters and these, all these debates about mourning is very, very striking, going back to Zechariah, off to the Zohar, in the Talmud. Rav Huna sent to her, sent her a message or a letter. Do not do this. He's telling her how to mourn. Do not do this, the rabbi says to the woman. She took no heed of him. He sent to her, if you listen to me, it is well. But if not, prepare shrouds for another death. And they all died. Her sons died one after the other. And here the normativity, the scolding of the rabbi, the scolding of this woman, essentially is a curse. And her sons die one after the other. And at the end, he even says to her, and if you keep mourning, you also will die. And she died. It's, a, it's really, in, in many ways, a grotesque story. Um, I showed it to a friend of mine. He said it's, it's sort of a, a, a grotesque revision of the story of, 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 um, of, of the martyrology of Hannah and her seven sons. Um, but it also, is, it's important to look at the story. I, I, I hesitated before, before putting it in, on, the, on, this, uh, on this PowerPoint because it's such a horrifying story. Um, uh, but it does show there's something very deep in our tradition, but I think 
maybe not, in, not only in our tradition, about disagreements about what proper mourning is and about authority, about gender here, certainly. Um, and, and, and these are these are something that go, go extremely deep. Um, now, before I, I'm gonna go back to the Zohar now for a while. Um, so before I do that, I want to see, I wanna take a question. Um, Rabbi Silver, did you wanna ask questions? Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, I just wanted to say that um, thank you again for the presentation. And you spoke about leading up to Tishabov in the 12 month period and the 30 days, and then Tishabov being Shiva. But I would say that Rabbi Soloveitchik, in a different time, uh, and he spoke very eloquently about uh, mourning in general, um, he focused in on a different frame, which is just in between death and the beginning of mourning, what we call uh, Aninut. And during Aninut, there actually you, you, you are not allowed to comfort. You don't perform the mitzvot. And in fact, the point to the Yerushalmi, it's actually forbidden to perform mitzvot. And his description of that time period is very similar to what Barth is talking about. Yes. Where you, there, there is no comfort and there is no observance. There is no culture, one would say. You simply, yes. because he called it uh, absurd. You're living with the absurd. And there's nothing we can do, nothing we can say. And then you move into mourning from that. And the Suda Hamaf second of Tishabov, the Talmud says, and you sit by the oven, and you have that meal just before Tishabov, like one who is uh, owning. So the Talmud actually mentions Aninut prior to Tishabov. So it's interesting in terms of what you're speaking about, sort of a segue into Tishabov from Aninut to, to Avelut, which Rabbi Soloveitchik spoke about in other contexts as well. I thought that was an interesting point in conjunction with your larger uh, larger point of boss etc thank you yes thank you thank you so much um yes i i thank you i, I couldn't say it better right i, I think that's exactly right the aninuth is like is like bart in front of his mother's uh a picture um uh when my father alisham died 22 years ago uh, i i was amazed at the at the at the at the really brilliance of the of the of the the Jewish mourning uh, practices and, and the psychological insight, um, I remember that uh, at my father's funeral before before the burial, somebody a good a well-meaning person came over to me and said, "I hope the memories comfort you." This is before the burial, um, and it was a well-meaning person, and I, it was, it's nothing against the person, but it was the wrong thing to say. And I actually had this, this flare up of anger, not at the person. I said, what do you mean the memories? What memories? He was just here a second ago. What do you mean memories? You're killing him. I, I got angry. I knew it wasn't right. I almost got angry at the person. I said, you're killing him. What do you mean the memories? You've already buried him. He's not, his body is not even in the ground yet. Um, and I think that, that the idea that during Aninut, before the burial, you're not allowed to comfort the person. is something very, very, uh, incredibly brilliant, um, and in his uh, in his own way, Bard is expressing that. And I, I, what you said was really perfect. It's it's without culture. There is no framework for it. Um, it's really beyond that. Um, okay, let's. I'm going to um, I'm going to go back to the Zohar, and that will really take us through to the end. Uh, 
and resume this debate between the Babylonians and the Jerusalemites. Okay. Um, and I'm dividing into sections first, this resuming what we started at the, at the beginning of our, of our session, and then, uh, and then moving to a, a, a different dimension to it, um, and the multidimensional Shekhinah, the multidimensional uh, divine female or goddess, if for those who prefer that language, um, in, in Kabbalah, right? And what it says about mourning and grief and loss personal and the collective. So let's turn back to this. And I've somewhat edited it, you know, moved around the order of some of the speeches. Um, I haven't changed the words, but moved around the speeches a little bit. The children of Babylon sent to the children of the Holy Land. Do you say that she, the Shekinah, is with us in exile and has brought her residence down within it? In other words, within the exile? If so, we should rejoice. For Ezekiel the prophet saw her here and all her hosts, right? And they're saying this somewhat sarcastically. They're saying, you know, what you're saying we don't have it so bad because we know there's an ancient Midrash that says that when the Jews go into exile, the Shekhinah goes with them. Now the Shekhinah, when, when the rabbis talk about the Shekhinah, they just meant the divine presence. In Kabbalah, when they say the Shekhinah, they mean a specific divine female figure. Um, and so they're saying to the Jews of Jerusalem, they're saying, so, so what you're saying is that we don't have it so bad because the Shekhinah is with us, right? And this kind of corresponds to the stage in mourning when people say, I'm still sad that my loved one died, but they're still with me. They're within me. I carry them within me. That's something that people often say. I carry them within me. I'm still sad that they're not here, but I carry them within me, and that has enabled me to get over it. And the children of Babylon are saying that the, that the, that the Jerusalemites are saying that they've reached that stage. But the children of Babylon refuse that, actually, and they say this. Well, they don't quite refuse it. They say something complicated. They say... This is precisely why we should cry and to make a eulogy, like a jackal or like ostriches of the desert, I guess, creatures that make these wailing sounds, these haunting wailing sounds. For she has been chased out of her palace and we are in exile and she has come to us in bitterness and she sees us every day. That's, sorry, it's a typo. She sees us every day in many troubles and many harsh decrees are upon us all the time. And she cannot remove the troubles from us and all these blows which we suffer. Now, what, what's going on here is, this is from a later part in, in the Zohar and Echa. And the, the Jews of Babylon here are sort of shifting. They're shifting from talking about the collective um, uh, disaster and the national disaster and they're they're sort of responding to the Jews of Jerusalem on their own turf, on the turf of our relationship to our mother. And they're describing a particular kind of experience of mourning, right? Which they say, you think that, you know, we've reached that stage where we say, okay, I'm still sad, but my mother is with me. I carry her with me. 
And, I, and we say to you that's not so simple. That the sadness of that is that you underestimate the sadness of that. Because even though, she, yes, she is with us, we also experience her own mourning at being unable to help us, or our mourning at the fact that although she's with us, she, we can't actually speak to her. So in a way, the fact that we've internalized her, in a way, if, if, if yet another further stage of mourning, a further stage of grief can be awakened once you've realized that you've completely internalized the loss of the, of the loved one. Very profound point that they're making here about, about a certain kind of stage in the mourning process. Of course, the children of Jerusalem didn't, didn't accept this. They said the children of the Holy Land sent back to them. Um, and, and I'm going to pick up where I, I left off before. We have great cause to cry and to mourn, for we are the children of the Queen, and we are members of our household, and we are orphans. It's just a reprise of what I passage I did at the beginning. And here, this is very much like Roland Barthes. And this is very much like the stage of Aninut that Rabbi Silver spoke about, the stage of where the, before the burial, and you are facing the dead body. And they say this, we look at the walls of our mother's house and behold, it is destroyed and we cannot find her. She who suckled us every day in the days of yore from her beautiful bosom. And she would comfort us and murmur to our hearts as a mother does with her child. They're reminiscing, they're having, they're, they're reminiscing of what it was like when she was alive. And then, but now we cast our eyes on all sides and the place of the dwelling house of our mother has been overturned and behold, it is destroyed. They're facing the destruction. We bang our heads on the walls of her house and her dwelling. Who will now comfort us? Who will murmur to our hearts? At this point in the text, mourning and madness begin to converge. They're banging their heads on the wall. Right? That's what's going on here. We, she's not inside of us, like for you in, in Babylon. The, her... Death is in front of us. We're, we're so overwrought by grief, we're banging our heads on the walls of our house. And why? Because of this. Every day we approach the bed of our mother, we do not find her there. We seek her out. No one takes any note of us. We seek her bed. It has been overturned. This is the, again, the madness of mourning. People don't understand the culture as as Barth says, don't understand. We are looking for her and she's not there. People take no note. There's some crazy person marauding around the city saying, where is my mother? No one takes any notice. We seek out her throne. It has fallen. We seek out her palaces. They swear they know nothing about her. And this is the very madness of mourning, right? Who are you talking about? She was never here. You're dreaming. It's a fantasy that you're talking about. There was no such person. We seek out the dust. Even the trace of her footsteps are absent. And here there's this paradox that the Jews of Jerusalem are, are showing here. They're saying, we have more cause to mourn 
because we're in Jerusalem, but in Jerusalem is where there is the absence. We're in the presence of the absence. In, you in Babylon, paradoxically, even though you're in exile, you have more presence because you've internalized her. We have only her absence. We're like Roland Barthes in front of the picture. We cannot transform our grief into mourning. We cannot internalize her. We are, we, we, we refuse to not see the absence. We're banging our head against the walls. We are uh, um, running around asking and people take no note of us. We cannot bring together our personal grief and some kind of cultural palliative. Um, and the really profound thing here is, although it, 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 in a mourner's house, you say to them, may God comfort you among all the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. Here in this passage, the personal mourning for the mother, they constantly are talking about her as a mother, and the collective mourning converge, and neither of them work to help the other. In a way, maybe it's only when, they're, when we distinguish them that each one can help us uh, uh, with the other one. Now, I want to shift here just a little bit and spend a few minutes, and then I'll, I'll open up again for questions. Um, in terms of a different kind of mourning and loss, and here we have the mourning of the divine rather than the mourning of human beings. And loss for the divine in the Zohar, in Kabbalah, is usually the loss of the male and female divine figures, the lo their loss of each other, their, the, the breaking of their romantic, their love union, their sexual union, um, and their loss of each other. So the Shekhinah in, the, in Kabbalah is not only the mother, she's also the woman, the lover, um, the, uh, 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 the wife, uh, and so forth. She's also a, an autonomous libidinal uh, figure in her own right. And this is what they have, they described it. And it also ends in kind of a scene of, in a way of, of, of grief so intense, it's a kind of madness. And as I read it, just remember the Blessed Holy One is the male figure, the Shekinah is the female figure. Because sins proliferated, the Blessed Holy One ascended above to the house of the world of life. And the house of the world of life, by the way, in, in, in the Zohar, is associated with um, the, 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 the supernal mother, the, 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 the upper mother. The Shina is the lower mother. This is the, the house of the world of life is really the upper mother associated with the world to come. It's the mother of the Blessed Holy One. He goes back to his mom's house. Right? in a time of trouble. And the ruler of the sanctuary, who is the Shina, went and fled and was banished from her dwelling to the mountain of the outside, to the destroyed mountain, and the sanctuary was destroyed. And for people who know Midrashim or Agadot about uh, the destruction of the temple, this plays on a passage in the Talmud, actually. Afterward, after the destruction, the Blessed Holy One, he who had ascended, descended and asked about his sanctuary. So now we have a similar scene of mourning, although now not the children for the mother, but now the, the male lover for his consort. And behold, it was destroyed. 
he entered and looked for the ruler of the sanctuary, the queen, the beloved of his soul, and she was banished and had fled, and all her edifice was destroyed. Then he began to bellow, bellow after bellow, like the screeching of a rooster for its female mate. This is one of the most incredible scenes in the Zohar, in which God, the Blessed Holy One, the Kadosh Baruch Hu, is described as consumed by a grief so strong that it comes out of him like in an animalistic way. And the word used here that I translate as bellow is go'ah, right? Can be, it, it's really an animalistic wail, right? God is consumed by a grief so intense for his female partner that he becomes animalistic, right? Completely consumed by this grief. He wailed and screamed towards the mountain where the queen had fled, he wailed and screamed and called in the screeching of crying, Echa, Echa, beloved of my soul, Echa, my perfect turtle dove, Echa, my only one who united with me in union, Echa, where have you gone, my sister, my daughter, my mother? And uh, for people who know the Song of Songs, this passage in the Zohar is a, is a reverse Song of Songs. It's using some of the imagery from the Song of Songs. Um, some of the very words, and are turning it into a lament, whereas in the Song of Songs, it's a love song. Shafni mati is the Aramaic here for yonati tamati in, in the Song of Songs. Um, this is this moment of grief. And what about her? In the middle of the night, she goes within the place of the Holy of Holies, which in the Tsar is figured as the bridal chamber or the, the nuptial chamber of the male and female divine figures. She sees that it has been destroyed and that her dwelling and the place of her bed have been contaminated, and she begins to sob and wail. She raises her voice and says, my bed, my bed, the place of my dwelling, my bed, my bed, do you not remember when he in other words, the male divine figure would come to join you in joy and the goodness of his heart. And his young men came towards me, beating their wings with joy. And we would hear from afar the bells ringing between his legs and my maidens would praise the blessed Holy One. And then they would all go to their own places and we would be alone embracing with kisses and love. It's this incredible scene. She goes and everything is destroyed and she has a sexual fantasy. This is actually a very, very graphic sexual fantasy that I won't go into the details here. Um, she has this incredible sexual fantasy in the smoking ruin of the destroyed temple. My husband, my husband, where to where have you turned away? Now is the time of day when I used to gaze upon you. I look on all sides and you are absent. She sobs and screams, my husband, my husband, the light of my eyes has now darkened. Do you not remember that your left hand was placed under my head and I delighted in complete satisfaction and your right hand embraced me with love and kisses? Now, I want you now to imagine this scene before I look at the, before I do, do the, the last section here. Imagine this scene that's being painted here in the Zohar. There's the male divine figure who comes and he's wailing. And the female divine figure comes and she's screaming and fantasizing and crazed with grief, right? Now, perhaps they've come at different times. Perhaps he's come at, in the afternoon, she's come at night. 
right? It's also possible that they're at the same time. And that's the real tragedy here is that they're there at the same time and they can't see each other, they can't find each other, even though they're both there wailing. And now if we kick in the scene, the earlier scene, that the children are also there wailing, banging their heads against, against the wall, then you have the complete scene. Imagine that they're all there at the same time and yet they can't find each other. And they're having this intense moment of grief and they can't find each other. It's almost as though all of the raw materials for a tikkun, to go back to Beth's comment earlier, all the raw materials for tikkun are there, and yet it can't happen there at this moment of grief, of this intense grief, contextless, animalistic, in, in, in the case of the, of the Blessed Holy One, animalistic, in, in a way, madness in the case of the children, um, also a kind of madness and flight of ideas in the case of the Shekinah, right? That's what's being described here. Um, if you think back to the passage in the Talmud with Rav Huna scolding the woman who mourned too much and actually cursing her and her children, terrible, terrible scene, right? Scolding someone for too much mourning. Um, I don't know what Rav Huna would have said about this passage in the Zohar. He, you know, lived probably a millennium before it was written. Um, but this is really getting at this intense, intense moment of grief. Right? Really getting at it, really trying to, to get at it. And I will now show you the last passage, very poignant passage by, in which, again, still the Shekinah speaking. You made an, and now bring together the collective and personal. You've made an oath. She's speaking to the male divine figures, to the Blessed Holy One. You made an oath that you would never take your love away from me. And you swore to me, if I forsake thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its strength. And remember the Midrash, which associates Jerusalem with this heavenly Jerusalem. And in Kabbalah, Jerusalem is another name for the Shekhinah. But also it's the literal Jerusalem. You made an oath that you would never take your love away from me, and you swore to me if I forsake the O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its strength, and yet you have forgotten me. And I'll just read that last bit in Aramaic to conclude this. And yet you have forgotten me. And if we think of them all there somehow at the same time and having this moment, this moment, and as observers, we want to say, on Tisha B'Av, we, we want to be in this experience. And I read the Zohar and Echa every Tisha B'Av, whether I'm teaching it or not. We want to be in this experience. And yet we want to call it and say, it's there. Nechama is there. You can do it. Right? You just need some of the tools. The raw materials are there. In a way, there is no rupture without the possibility of tikkun, which is a paraphrase of something that Rav Nachman said. Um, but I think that the, the final thing I would say is, mourning has its own rhythms. Everyone has mourning on their own rhythms. Sometimes it's possible to transform grief into mourning, to use Roland Barthes' terms. Sometimes it's not. Um, certainly, 
in order to really experience the healing of mourning, you have to experience the kind of grief that's so eloquently described um, in these texts and keep on within you that dialogue, the dialogue between different kinds of mourning and different kinds of healing that are so eloquently expressed um, in our tradition. Um, we have about five minutes left, so I'd be happy to take um, some more comments and questions if people have them. Michael, do we have any? Uh... Uh, yes, I see. Uh, let's see, we have uh, Rabbi Silber, you had something again, and then uh, Susanna Heschel as well. Uh, I'll be, uh, sh uh, should I speak first or? Uh, yeah? Sure. All right, but very briefly, I just wonder about the Gemara that, uh, the thing that you cited from Tiny, that story, which is somewhat grotesque about Rafuna. But I'm actually wondering about, and I don't remember the context there, but I wonder if there's not a different point being made because the story there is about a woman that has seven children and she sort of mourns uncontrollably for the first one that dies. Very much reminds me of the story in the Chumash about Yaakov. And after they bring Joseph's coat to Yaakov and he's mourning and mourning and they all arise to console him. He says, mm -hmm. no, I'm gonna, until I die, I will, I will go to the grave mourning my son. And the larger context of that story is you, people have different commitments. Family has commitments to different members of the family. And what happens if you favor one to a great extent over the others, you, you can end up losing all of them, which is what almost happens to Jacob. So I wonder if there's not that another element in that story about mourning. I guess the larger question, we have to mourn, we should mourn, we shouldn't forget. And the question is how to work that into our daily lives and our in the rhythms of our of our life, I think that's a you know very important question which you have implicitly raised. But maybe that's the really the focus of that particular statement. Yes, I I, I agree with you, and I, I I know I want to let Susanna speak, but um, I had among the passages that ended up on the cutting room floor just for sake of time were the passages in the Tanakh where somebody refuses to be comforted. There's there's Jacob, of course. There's even more famously Rachel. Kol uh, Baraman Nishma, Rachel uh, refusing to be comforted um, for her children, um, and there's a, there's a passage from Tehillim as well, and all those places where somebody refuses to be to be comforted. Um, uh, I would love to talk to you further about the Rav Huna story. Um, uh, it was a nice save, um, uh, uh, um, and it's, it's very interesting. Looking at it in context, it's, it's very very interesting. Um, to see what 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 they're saying there there on on that on that page there, um, but yes, that, that 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 exactly the issues that you raised was is what I'm trying to to put before everyone today. Um, Susanna, thank you. Uh, it was wonderful, and I really appreciate your talk. Um, I'm just wondering, you you didn't speak about exile, and I'm wondering if we see two different traditions of uh, mourning over the destruction and uh, mourning over exile that perhaps um, do not necessarily coalesce because of the, some of the texts that you brought about being in Babylon, being in Jerusalem. Uh, so that was curious to me. But I, um, the other thing was that I started wondering, since um, Israel Yuval has written about exile as a, a way of countering certain Christian claims that, that um, Christ replaced the, the temple, 
And I started wondering if the union in, in the Zohar that's so important in Kabbalah is a substitute for incarnation, is a kind of Jewish incarnational theology in this heterosexual union that's always described. So those are just simple, my reactions. Thank you. Thank you, Susanna. But I mean, both those questions would, would uh, the, the first one actually is addressed in, in this exchange between the Jews of Babylon and, and the Jews of Jerusalem. And I think that the, the, in, in a way, what, in a way what's being said there is that it's the fact that they're in exile that allows them to do this internalization process. Um, it, 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 that's what the Jews are saying. You know, you're in exile, and you're somehow able, and again, playing on this, that the Shekhinah goes into exile thing from the rabbis, you're able to sort of internalize the, the lost loved one precisely because you're not there. Right? And it's a very paradoxical thing. Right? Um, whereas we are unable to perform that internalization because we are still present at the absence. Um, and it's the difference that Bart describes between grief and mourning. I, I didn't end, end up talking about Derrida, but Derrida has a very similar distinction between um, a failed and a successful mourning. And he says they're both, he says it fails when it succeeds and it succeeds when it fails. And he's basically expressing the same idea that internalizing the loved one in a way is getting rid of them or, or giving up the grief. Right? It's, it's incorporating them into the ego. Um, uh, and there's a certain kind of love there that, the, that in the Zohar, the Jews of Babylon themselves say. As to your second question, I realize I only have one minute left. Um, I, yeah, I, I mean, I think that the topic of the, the dialogue with Christianity in the Zohar is huge, uh, is a huge theme. Um, and, uh, the stress on the divine body or divine bodies um, and the, 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 the Shekhinan. This is a, a huge topic in, in, current, in current discussions in Kabbalah. Art Green wrote a, a famous article about a long time ago. Uh, a young scholar named Yonatan Ben-Arosh uh, just wrote a couple of books on this. Um, this is a, a very, very important theme. Alan Haskell also um, has written an important book on this. Um, a very important theme of the way in which the Zohar, um, perhaps precisely because they're writing in a Christian setting, in a way are bringing the mythological imagination of the Zohar so rich and so concrete, um, uh, uh, brings back to Judaism all the rich imagery um, and very, very physical, sensuous, sens sensual imagery um, that had been banished by the Rambam um, and, and people uh, like that. Um, I see that where it's 2.15, uh, and I know that Trisha is having another session that will begin in 15 minutes, and I'm supposed to end at 2.15. Um, so I thank you all for listening, um, and uh, 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 what can I say to close? Um, I want to say two things uh, in, in, in relationship to the two, the two kinds of, of ways of dealing with death, or two of the kinds of ways of dealing with death we're talking about, one could say is since we're all mourners um, on Tisha B'Av, I want to say, we're all mourners on Tisha B'Av. Right? And I also want to say to you, um, 
don't let go of the picture. Don't let go of the picture. Every once in a while, take out the picture and experience the grief. And in a way, that's what we're commanded to do on Tisha B'Av. Uh, we're supposed to nurture that, not to disrespect the loss by forgetting about the picture and re-experiencing even the phase of Aninut, that initial most intense phase of mourning in which there is no culture and there is no comfort. And also, both at the same time, um, and we should know healing in our time. Thank you very much.